Previously on Real Politic. I've got to announce actually that I'm leaving the show to focus on my new job as the banjo player for Mumford and Sons. <laughs> so, so is one of them or all of them being cancelled? One of the them news? has been cancelled. Mumford and Sons banjo player. Although he's actually also their lead guitarist, but it's just funnier to call him their banjo player. Are you familiar with a guy called uh, Andy? No. The name sounds familiar, but I dick. couldn't say. His new book is called Unmasked, and it's about how Antifa are the number one terrorist threat to national security right. and democracy. Anti-fascists are the real fascists, yeah. Yeah, but Winston Marshall, the banjoista, has tweeted, Congratulations at Mr. Andy No. Finally have the time to read your important book. You're a brave man. Loads of people were like, you're fucking idiot this guy has written a book about how anti-fascists are terrible what do you think fascism is good or what <laughs> he, he's got the Mumfords into hot water before because Winston Marshall was a fan of his Jordan Peterson came to visit them at the studio and had a picture ah, with all of them great. as a result of the backlash Winston Marshall has deleted all of his tweets, <laughs> which mainly seem to be promoting cryptocurrency, but that's all gone now. <laughs> all to... that sage advice. Yeah, yeah, trying to promote cryptocurrency links between the city of London and Hong Kong. That project's <laughs> over now. He has now shared a statement. Over the past few days, I have come to better understand the pain caused by the book I endorsed. I have offended not only a lot of people I don't know, but also those closest to me, including my bandmates, and for that I am truly sorry. As a result of my actions, I am taking time away from the band to examine my blind spots. <laughs> Opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who wants to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that. that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent. Do we know who the hard left who associate with the hard left? You just said that we were right, right wing. Hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalisation without compensation. Hard left wing position. Hard left, hard left, hard left. The hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left. The hard left, 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 hard left. We put off talking about this on our last episode because like there was some other stuff going on, and because we wanted to save it up to do with Elijah, because I thought it would be funny. We're all about balance here on Real Politics. We thought we we need to get someone on that is representative of the, the Mumford fan community. Jesus Christ. <laughs> slander. A real Mumford head. Absolute slander. Absolutely outrageous. I won't stand for this. I'm going to get their Wikipedia page up for this conversation, because I don't know. I know, I mean, I do. I know the basics, I think, but uh, I'm fuzzy on the fact. What, what you need to know about them, you, you learn in seconds. Like, they're all posh cunts, and <laughs> they just sing twee bollocks, yeah, right, you know? <laughs> I, you sort of twigged that the first time I heard them, checked it at the time, like, is that, yeah, and, okay, cool. Even I, years ago, like, 
when they first got big, people were talking about how there was a fair degree of nepotism down. Like, oh yeah, it's easy to, to, to have a hit record when daddy just, you know, pays for everything kind of thing. This was before they got all the political. Yeah, they were trying quite hard to like push a narrative around them when they first got famous. Oh, this guy's worked so hard for years, this, this Marcus Mumford guy, you know, working on other people's music and that. It's like, basically, you hung around studios full time. <laughs> not needing to have consistent work because you're extremely privileged and you know also meant you could nag everyone you met like here's my music here's my Absolutely. music you know oh it's the it's the internship model right but he's trying to recreate like that kind of nashville community where all the musicians do know each other because they all live and work in the same place and, and they will write songs together yeah. and work together but it's because they have like a organic scene and you can yeah. sort of try to like force that to sort of recreate that in somewhere like London which I mean is it a musical capital really like does a lot of stuff happen there in the way that maybe Glasgow is for Scotland or okay yeah 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 it's an industry capital but that's not the same is it really you know bands come down to play London to try and get a sign but that's that's different from being based there you know? yeah no these guys are the leading lights of the west london folk scene apparently. <laughs> i was gonna say aren't, i was gonna say aren't they from like are there any other lights are they even from <laughs> are they even from fucking london aren't they from fucking surrey but i guess like you move to london to actually like yeah make it big uh yeah no i, I have no idea the west the West London folk scene does not have its own Wikipedia page, so I can't see who, who else could conceivably be a part, because, like, on the Mumford & Sons Wikipedia page, under Associated Acts, there's two, one of whom is Alabama Shakes, who are American, and the other is Moulettes, who are uh, an English art rock band, um, who are, 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 well, not American, but I don't know if they're part of, like, the West London folk scene. <laughs> When I think London folk scene, I think of like Topic Records, right? Like the old communists who 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 put together a record label, um, purely designed to sort of maintain and keep and actually sort of preserve a kind of folk tradition that would otherwise just not have any way of of being maintained because it's not a integral aspect of the sort of commercialized industry sphere, right? Where things usually just get preserved because they make a degree of money. And these guys were driving around in like a fucking Morris Minor with, with, with sandbags in the back, you know, for like noise padding and an old tape recorder that they'd managed to get secondhand from the BBC or something. Uh, and they just go to pubs and set up and they would record uh, Irish sessions in pubs or they, or they drive around to where traveling workers would would be at different times of the season and get people to like sing traveler songs and it's the it's the sort of it's the kind of Ewan McCall sort of scene you know the A.L. Lloyd oh yeah of stuff. course yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's excellent and <laughs> and the idea <laughs> that's the real shit yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah but I mean it doesn't make any money Topic Records is still going by the way it's 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 actually fantastic it was yeah. founded you know ages ago by a uh, union of I think communist music workers or something like that uh, I don't remember all the details I should have checked beforehand but it, uh, they're still going uh i like their their uh, curated playlists uh it's on spotify uh where they put like new uh folk acts and folk bands it's really good you can check that out um and you can also listen to their voice of the people series right which is a massive collection of 
folk songs from England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Northern Ireland uh, that goes back, I think, nearly a century in terms of what they've managed to collect. Uh, and the idea that this reaches its apex in the form of Mumford and Sons is, <laughs> is almost insulting, right? It's 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 a yeah yeah. It's nearly blasphemous if you want to take a spiritual <laughs> approach to your music. <laughs> yeah, man. I, like, let's wind back a little bit. So, like, just do some introductory stuff because we kind of jump. Oh, right Oh yeah, in. we did. We did. Oh, we're excited to talk about folk music. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, well, welcome to Real Politic, everyone. Like, today we're joined by our friend Elijah at Klezmer Rouge on Twitter. Hello. You're, uh, I believe, part of the Podcasting is Praxis family, are you not? I have taken a step back uh, since okay. they streamlined to go slightly more professional. Uh, I don't really have the time to do regular podcasting and reg regular digital media stuff, uh, which is good because it means that I get to go back to doing gigs again because things are slowly reopening and I can actually do my normal job, which is do music for a living, which is good, you know. The other uh, thing is you're a musician and uh, you <laughs> specifically, you play a lot of folk music. Yes, I play folk and bluegrass, which is why I'm the guy to talk to about Mumford and Sons, apparently. Because <laughs> you're such a big fan. <laughs> Such a big fan. I used to like a bit of Mumford and Sons when it was just, um, it was perceived as sort of, um, or for me at least, I was going through a bit of an indie phase, and it was just like a sort of interesting little diversion from your sort of average angsty guitar indie sound. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I got more into like actual folk music, I started to um, experience some dissonance in the way I listened to Mumford and Sons. And I just stopped listening to Mumford and Sons because it started to really, really, really do my tits in. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of similar to what we were just saying earlier about the sort of London folk scene where what they've done is they've taken a genre, I guess in this case, probably bluegrass, um, that has a hard earned authenticity right, through a long, long, long history of deeply upsetting sort of popular upheaval in the, in the geographical areas where it comes from. Um, we're talking like minor strikes, uh, union busters shotgunning people in the face, um, people losing friends and family, uh, trying to keep their communities alive. Uh, mining companies would come in, take the tops off mountains, the, the slurry would roll down, poison all the creeks and the rivers and all the farmlands. Um, and people tried to fight back very heavily. There's a couple of good bits of media about this. I don't know if you've seen the the, the Netflix show. Is it Damnation? I think it is about the traveling. No, I've heard of that. The, I, th I, th I think that's what it's called. It's a it's a traveling trade union organizer posing as a priest. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and his brother is a is a union buster sent in by the big companies, and uh, they kill people. They would kill the farmers. They would kill the miners on strike. Anyway. Um, so there's this hard work, hard earned authenticity, this, this hard fought for auth authenticity of a genre that in kind of like mainstream terms then gets sort of mocked and derided, right? Like if it's the old joke, oh, I listen to everything except for rap and country, mm. right? Or, or people say country, they probably mean bluegrass as well. They just don't know <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. differences like, in play. Yeah. <laughs> that redneck shit. Yeah. And, and you, you know, yeah. you don't even want to say what the equivalent of that for rap music is. Well, you know exactly what it is, right? It's, it's, um, there's an obvious sort of social undercurrent and kind of assumptions being made there. And I think part of the thing with bluegrass is sort of reflected in the, in the wider political developments where um, the sort of mid-south 
region of the US that, that, that had some of the most effective and most like militant trade union operations fighting back against the excesses of capital was then very deliberately left, not just left behind by the sort of coastal institutions and the you know, kind of liberal elites, but then mocked and derided. You know, and you, if you remove social institutions and welfare and funding and you just leave an area behind, you make them vulnerable to reactionary predators like the KKK, like virulent racist groups. If, you know, if there's no social welfare structures, if there's no good education, people are disenfranchised and despondent and they, and they struggle in poverty. And things like racism will grow and then you make fun of them and you mock them for that and then you blame them for this social condition that has been caused, right, by yeah. a deliberate machination of institutional American capital. And I think the music is interesting because it kind of reflects that. It's like you said, it's this redneck shit, right? And that's not to say that there aren't some awful, awful country musicians. <laughs> you know, like for sure. But the reason why you don't like country or bluegrass maybe is is a form of classism, is a form of, of, uh, of deliberately engineered mockery of an area that uh, was actually dangerous to capital at a time, if that makes sense. And then so what Mumford and Sons do is they is they they take a little slicer, right? A little mandolin slicer. Hey, there's a pun. And they kind of cut off like one little sheen, one little layer of that authenticity from that genre. And they represent it as something valuable when it's really just kind of a sort of masquerade, right? It's a little flavor of it. it it's a little taste. And they repackage it with a non-threatening accent, with this kind of, it's okay to, to like Mumford and Sons because they're English and they're, you know, they're posh and they're not actually rednecks and they're not threatening in any way, shape or form. They're not musically threatening. They're not politically threatening. They're not, you know, anything like this at all. I wouldn't really go so far as to try like a kind of, um, ill thought out use of the term cultural appropriation but there's a similar dynamic at play i think mm. I, I just give you an idea of when we say posh we don't just mean they come from nice comfortable middle class families <laughs> i'm currently on the wikipedia page for the recently departed he's not dead he's just gone off to be a right-wing dickhead like unheard and gb news or whatever <laughs> winston marshall uh, i'm currently looking at his dad's wikipedia page uh, <laughs> sir paul roderick That's good shit, sir paul roderick clucas marsh clucas oh, marshall uh, is a british investor according to the sunday times rich list in 2020 marshall is worth 630 million pounds uh, it's i i think i saw a headline recently where he'd just given what like 60 million to gb news something like that i wonder if he's gonna start yeah. having some clashes with his son because uh, it says <laughs> at the time uh marshall waste uh, like basically his hedge fund marshall waste the company started with 50 million half of which was from George Soros. I don't know what uh, Andy <laughs> No would say about that, you know? <laughs> so so in an abstract sense, the reactionary decade from Mumford & Sons is Soros-funded. <laughs> oh my God, it See, goes I'm... deeper than I ever thought. Paid for his education, it's paid for you know, all his music lessons as a kid. <laughs> oh, well, I'm just reading about his dad's political affiliation. He's got a massive political affiliation section by, like, the standards of just some bu business arsehole. 
Oh, what a start. Oh my god. I, I, I wasn't expecting that first paragraph. Fucking hell. Marshall had a long-standing involvement with Britain's Liberal Democrats Party. <laughs> he was a research, research assistant to Charles Kennedy MP. It's so possibly actually a moleft of the Liberal Democrat Party. <laughs> Former leader of the Liberal Democrats in 1985 and stood for Parliament for the SDP Liberal Alliance in Fulham in 1987. Um, he co-edited the Orange Book with David Laws. <laughs> so the Orange Book, for those not familiar, is like the manual of market liberalism that the liber- the the right wing of the Lib Dems put together. So scratch what I said about because he worked for Charlie Kennedy, who was maybe on the left of the Lib no. Dems. I do I do not think this investor slash hedge fund manager is is a a a, a, a social liberal, if you will. He's not not just a reactionary, but a melty one to boot. Like, the worst kind. <laughs> yeah, he contributed to this book alongside Nick Clegg, Chris Hewn, Vince Cable, Ed Davey, current Lib Dem leader and former coalition minister. Uh, like, just assholes. <laughs> so, uh, although he's obviously moved or found his place on the sort of right of the Lib Dems, which is centre-right, really. Oh, well, oh there's developments, been... yeah. He seems to have been radicalised quite quickly because up till 2015, he was still making, I say, small donations like by his standards to the Lib Dems. He then left the party because it was like pro-EU. <laughs> Him and Soros had a <laughs> falling out. <laughs> uh, it's like radicalisation in the sort of cold, factual terms of Wikipedia. So he left them in 2015. In July 2016, Marshall donated £3,250 to Michael Gove's Conservative leadership campaign. Oof, bad call. In 2017, so two years at most here from, from being a Lib Dem, Marshall gave funding to a new political news website called Unheard. <laughs> and then in, in, in probably at some point in late 2020, He's I think. Deep in um, the rot. So, yeah, he's then donated 10 million, which is, you know, 50 times as much as he donated in 13 years to the Lib Dems when he was a member of them, into GB News. That was 10 million, not 60. Okay. Jesus. He's completely lost his bearings. This guy has been red-pilled in a, in a quite frightening way at some point. This, this guy's gone on some absolutely cursed subreddits. Was man. it Brexit, do you think, that, that broke his brain? Is that around the right kind of time? Well, if he left Lib Dems in 2015, yeah. it sounds like he was a Brexit supporter before it happened. So he was already on the Eurosceptic train. As the referendum ramped up, that yeah. seems to have been his... The Lib Dems are always going to be... But I actually have an article that relates relates to all this. Uh, actually, let's just read before we get. Since we're talking about that, let's see what it what it says on Wikipedia about his involvement in the referendum campaign. Because I saw that there was a 2016 EU referendum campaign section on his Wikipedia <laughs> page, and I was just like, "Oh, of course he was like involved. He was one of probably the main organisers of Remain." But actually. He gave a donation of £100,000 to the Leave campaign. He, he wrote for Brexit Central uh, in April 2017 that exiting the EU was a huge opportunity for the UK to be a champion of free trade, open and outward looking <laughs> to the world and built on strong institutions. Oh. Surprised Keir Starmer hasn't hired this guy as a speechwriter with the, the last bit, but, you know, free trade. He's not abandoned his orange book principles, clearly. Yep. And then... And then he said in the Financial Times that most people in Britain do not want to become part of a very large country called Europe. They want to be part of a country called 
Britain. Uh, I, uh, I thought he was, I was hoping he was going to go for something very trite, like they want to be part of the world. I don't know, you know, that, <laughs> that, 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 that very, very see-through attempt at like trying to accuse uh, or, or sort of trying to weaponize like anti-racism. What, you don't want more visas for Indians? Uh, you know, like, <laughs> as if that was the Commonwealth people they had in mind, really, sure. Don't want to be part of a country called Opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like they want to be part of the world is more of kind of like a Remainer thing, you know? Strong free trade institutions, like slightly more public contracts to UK firms. You know, that's the kind of radical institutional building that we on the sort of liberal left of British politics have come to appreciate as groundbreaking. God. <laughs> Speaking of strong financial institutions, I like to get all my news from www.efinancialcareers.co.uk, uh, www a <laughs> publication of record. Uh, they've published an article on the 25th of June called Plain Spoken Hedge Fund Manager Stands By 33-Year-Old Son. And then <laughs> 33 year I love that, just rubbing it. Stands by adult baby. I've just posted, yeah, then they have a picture of a banjo. I've just posted uh, the, the, the link in, in the Discord for you guys. Um, it's not oh, always the God. case that the children of parents who've made fortunes in finance opt to go into the family career. Look at Skylar Handler, daughter of. Who gives a fuck about these guys? Like, uh, something. What kind of so, name is that? Wait, Skyler Handler. Wait, what? Or Jess Staley's daughter, Alex, who at one point had something to do with drones. Just like this person became a weapons manufacturer. Are these drones as in just like the ones people have flying around their gardens or like drones to sell to the US military? Well, I guess the same. The companies that make the ones that people have in their gardens want to sell shoegaze to the US. No? Uh, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that could be it. But she's, she's uh, a, a supporting musician in the touring lineup of some. <laughs> <laughs> there are also plenty of finance progeny who've gone into music. Uh, right, okay. By the way, that joke would have more people would have got it if I'd have said "son o," but that's not how you pronounce it. Just "son." Uh, one of the musicians. Stick us for the facts here at Real Politics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, again, we stand <laughs> tall against the threat of fake news. <laughs> one of the musicians is was yeah. There are also plenty of finance progeny who've gone into music. One is Winston Marshall. The 33-year-old son of Paul Marshall, the 61-year-old co-founder and chairman of hedge fund Marshall Wace. Until yesterday, Winston was the lead guitarist slash banjo player for the band Mumford & Sons. I, I was saying to Grant when we talked about this before, Elijah, mm -hmm. but it's so funny how he is also the lead guitarist for the band, but every article just said banjo player because it's funnier. Yeah, it is funnier. It's also uh, <laughs> it's a little bit of insight into how he can into how seriously he takes his music because from what i've seen he just kind of strums it like a guitar it's like playing ukulele really? improperly Fucking it's like this twee thing yeah he just tunes it into double c gets those nice four chord shapes on the go and just kind of strums it um i mean you can play banjo with a pick the guy from trampled by turtles is fucking amazing at it uh but but he plays it like a banjo, not like a oh, guitar. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. This, it's this guitar arrogance thing where, oh, if it's got frets and strings, I can play it, you know, sure. Can you fuck? 
Go away. Read a yeah. book. Sorry. <laughs> so already, I mean, that, well, that he, he has been he has been reading books. That's the problem. Mm, mm-hmm. He's been reading books about how Antifa are like destroying American democracy. Yeah, I fucking take it back. So that sentence: there are also plenty of finance progeny who've gone into music is one of the most cursed things I've ever fucking Most's heard in my life. Yeah. My God. Yeah, yeah like that's, that's just what we good. need: finance progeny and music raging against the machine. Fuck. It's telling us a truth that it doesn't realise it's telling us in that mm-hmm. article. It's like very much not the point of the article, but it's <laughs> the most revealing thing in it. I can't think of anyone like good who who is the progeny of finance financiers. Like I can think of some like musicians with like pretty evil parents, like David Berman, the late great David Berman. His dad is a complete cunt, like a lobbyist for all the worst corporations in America. Yeah. Berman fucking hated his dad. Uh, and then, uh, I, I don't know, you know, I I don't know anything about them as people, but I'm pretty sure, like, Bill Callahan's parents were both in the NSA or the CIA or something. <laughs> like, they're both, he's, he's the child of two spies. <laughs> Frank Turner's dad was an, was an investment banker, unsurprisingly. Oh, right. Yeah, well, I okay, but, but, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I said anyone. I can't think of anyone good. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, and it, right, so what, what else does this say? Uh, in a Medium post, Winston explained that he was resigning from the band following a social media furore over his book, support for a book written by American journalist Andy Gnow that accuses anti-fascist group Antifa of seeking to de- destroy democracy. The only way forward, he wrote, was for me to leave the band. I hope in distancing myself from them, I am able to speak my mind without them suffering the consequences. And maybe, like, in a minute, we should take a look on his Twitter to see if he's, like, said anything since leaving the band. Now he's got his freedom of speech back. Uh, Oh, here we go. His dad has Twitter. His father has leapt to his defence on Twitter. For anyone who knows the older Marshall... This should come as, as no surprise. Alongside running a hedge fund, he's the founder and publisher of Unheard, a site that describes its mission as breaking away from binary, defensive, liberal, or angry reactionary thinking, pushing back against herd mentality, and providing a platform for <laughs> otherwise unheard ideas, people, and places. Yeah, they've de-emphasized all the cow stuff unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Paul Marshall has himself used the unheard platform to advocate against the shame narrative of British history and to call for a British History Day. He's also written about Churchill's rejection of Marx. Socialism seeks to pull down wealth. Liberty... They've just got a massive fucking (laughs) Churchill quote, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, Winston Churchill's insistence on his freedom to express his opinion and his father's defence of that is therefore entirely in keeping with martial family values. (laughs) Emphasis on family values. Yeah, that's why he fought the Battle of Britain, you know? That's why he fought the Nazis, because they were big on the cancel culture, you know? (laughs) <laughs> that was the real threat to democracy. They, they, their social media platforms in Germany were just heavily censored. <laughs> it also reflects a willingness for some hedge fund managers to involve themselves in broad social issues. While Bridgewater's raid dailyo is all about honesty at the individual level, Marshall's crusade is more about social transparency. Should you interview at Marshall Wace? 
it will help to bear this in mind. <laughs> Just to turn up for an interview at Marshall Waste, be like, well, I don't know nothing about all this finance malarkey, but that PC has gone bloody mad, hasn't it? You've got the job. You're clearly the most qualified person. The high street don't it. look like England no more. I want to work in an office that does. <laughs> that's the article that it fucking ends there they've just got oh, an embedded God. tweet from from paul marshall saying uh, linking the medium article and saying very proud of my son i'm just thinking of the 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 recent thing there with the spectator um posted about some anonymous national trust guy who said that they ask you if you voted leave and if you say yes you don't get the job at interviews, like you clearly made up, but he's there, you know, like pretty much saying, "Yeah, this is a racist company." Fuck, what of it? God, what jumped out at me just having a look there is that uh, Paul Marshall has deleted all his tweets from before June this year. Oh, what to like save his son's ass, basically, so his son doesn't get shit for all stuff he's said. Well, it, it was just before that, so I think possibly it's to save GB News's ass because he's previously. He's, he's just tweeted openly, like, yeah, about cultural Marxism and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> the guy is a fucking liability. I was genuinely, not that the Lib Dems aren't right wing, but I was genuinely surprised just now that that was his background because yeah, yeah. as long as he's been on my radar since the, the unheard thing, he's been sort of at least, at best, sort of one degree away from the far right, you know, and, and in quite a sort of online way. What surprises me there is seeing one of these cultural Marxist warriors with like a modicum of self-awareness to realize that they are actually spouting Nazi conspiracies. They usually just pretend to be idiots about it. What? No, it's just, no. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's cultural Marxism. It's fucking, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, lo I love both his first and last retweets on, on the timeline. Firstly, uh, an Al Alexander Solzhenitsyn bot account. Militant <laughs> atheism <It> is... <laughs> Militant atheism is not merely incidental or marginal to communist policy. It is not a side effect, but the central pivot. It's like, what the fuck has that got to do with anything? It's not like the communists nowadays that are militant atheists, is it? It's people oh. who are like major facts and logic unheard GB News what dudes. Could have like, been. I think we dodged a bullet there. Imagine if like the amazing atheist crew had like become communists instead of George. Peterson yeah. fanboys. Uh, incidentally, I can't be bothered to go through the episode and check if I actually did say this, but like the only funny bit in Winston Marshall's Wire Left Mumford and Sons piece is just when he quotes Solzhenitsyn twice within like four paragraphs. He's just like, well, who's a bold voice against the uh, anti-far communist threat? Well, Solzhenitsyn, obviously, who else? Uh, Solzhenitsyn again. My dad likes him. The first one is Andrew Sullivan is like some bad right wing bell end, isn't he? Am I thinking? He's got Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um he he has shared a Nick Cohen tweet, uh which, uh which is like a quote from Aldous Huxley. 
Nick Cohen's quoting Aldous Huxley saying, The surest way to work up a crusade in favour of some good cause is to promise people they will have a chance of maltreating someone. To be able to destroy with good conscience, this is the height of psychological luxury, the most delicious of moral tweets, and Sullivan's like, the key to why wokeness is popular. And I just think, like, these Huxley and Solzhenitsyn quotes are just, like, classic, like, reactionary, pretentious, arsehole, like, shit to be, like, pumping onto your timeline. <laughs> it's very fucking weird. I mean, the, the, the larger point that speaks to for the music industry, I guess, if we want to go in that direction for a bit, is, is just how similar it is to the rest of any kind of public success in the UK, where it's, it's, it's all nepotistic, it's all inbred, it's all highly concentrated in like a certain social strata uh, and sort of area. Mm. I mean, I don't know, it's, 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 a, it's a hard one for me because a lot of musicians, it's one of these jobs where the ideology has been very, very heavily sort of internalized by people right who take on this sort of entrepreneur mindset um and the reason why we have good bands in certain periods is because there was an allowance there was an availability uh, of people pursuing that without failure as a musician being like a death sentence right yeah like you were it, it was possible to be, be a musician not make it big but you were part of a of an ecosystem you were part of a scene there was a social infrastructure and you need that, right? For for every Metallica that makes it huge, there's there's hundreds, if not thousands, of bands who, who were you know in the same place who who had to go to the gigs, play the gigs, who 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 had to fail, so that one per yeah. so, so that one group of people could could actually get it right. And Megadeth, <laughs> Dave Mustaine was that guy. He he had to fail so that Metallica could make it. Big. Oh, yeah, sorry, but no. It's... <laughs> Sorry, that's very funny. Good point, um, man. I just yeah. <laughs> what it's... Dave Mustaine, man. What a what funny a guy. guy. <laughs> funny guy. Uh, man, that's fucked up. You know, speaking of uh, long-time band members who've had to leave bands, like recently, Dave L. Ellefson, the bassist of Megadeth, like was kicked <laughs> out of the band because he had like some uh, cam scan, like it, but just like <laughs> footage was leaked of him like wanking <laughs> off to some girl on cam. Oh and, dear. Uh, people were like, she's underage, and it turned out she. He wasn't but uh -huh. uh, and but megadeth kicked him out anyway and he he uh is now saying he got hit by like a revenge porn thing oh no <laughs> oh, yeah what a sorry state of affair oh. he, I, I think he there, he there was a time when he wasn't in the band because like it's very hard to like consistently remain friends with dave mustaine but like oh, i can imagine yeah he's been on and off in the band for like 30 years and then just like Bam, like yeah imagine being in a band with the guy from metallica and he writes some kick-ass early records you know some sick riffs and then he decides actually i'm a born again sort of neocon you know and and and, <laughs> and george bush is amazing <laughs> what a weird trajectory what a bizarre weird. kind of thing yeah to to have happen but i mean i was watching the star is born the other day have you seen that film i haven't actually watched it yet no this is you mean the recent one yeah lady yeah gaga. the bradley cooper and lady gaga one the nice film it's got that usual sort of like scene in a in a music film where the aspiring musician gets their big break right like and they get to sing on a stage with thousands of people and it's very emotional yeah. and they're overcome it's a great little heartstring puller you know in walk hard for dewey cox story when he gets yeah. to sing at the african-american <laughs> club good evening we're bobby shad and the bad man i'm dewey cox bobby shad couldn't be here tonight so i'm going to do his show for you 
and I hope you enjoy it. This first song we're fitting to do is, uh, well, it's about, uh, <laughs> it's about when your woman catches you, you know. She catches you running around town, getting into all kind of strange. <laughs> this is racially insensitive. And she says, son, get your lazy two-timer Negro ass up out of here. And you say to her, you got the love the Negro man. And he does a, a stirring performance of You've Got to Love Your Negro Man. <laughs> That's a really good film, actually. I haven't rewatched that one. Great movie. Weird, yeah. One of my favorites. Uh, possibly better than Walk the Line, yeah. I think definitely. <laughs> She's a waitress, aspiring singer. She meets this, like, um, established country star, right? Um, she plays massive arena gigs and has people recognize him in the street. And so he loves her singing, so he becomes her mentor uh, and, and gives her this opportunity. He takes her up on stage, he sends his driver to like pick her up and fly her out to the gig, you know, like, like from her nine to five job, which she quits so she can go do this gig. Um, and he pulls her up on stage and it's emotional and, and, and it's great. And all I can think of there is, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if you could just pursue your musical dreams without needing to, to, to first make sure that you had a home to go to at the end of the month, right? Yeah. It's kind of, the, yeah. That, that's all I could think of. Uh, and it and it just keeps coming back to this. I get really frustrated. We have this entrepreneur mindset sort of in, even at a local level, people don't really collaborate, you know, to sort of make yeah. the most of like what could happen. Everyone's sort of trying to just kind of get ahead in a, in a kind of sharky way. Um, and it's because we don't have these scenes anymore. Right. You don't really need to actively collaborate when you have a healthy, thriving scene because the opportunities kind of organically appear for everyone. But when the scenes yeah. are struggling, when the pubs get shut down, when the venues get shut down, when the infrastructure goes away, when the creative funding comes close to zero. Do you know how much funding grassroots music venues in other European countries get from their government? Probably quite a lot compared to Britain. Well, in some countries, it's... It, it, it's as much as 50% of their turnover. Yeah. Well, especially like the David Cameron government just basically decided the arts aren't socially useful. No. In the UK, it's, it's zero. Like, yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. Fuck film. Fuck music. Anything. You know, or maybe like, oh, well, we'll give money to Matthew Vaughn who makes the kick ass movies because he's a big Tory <laughs> donor and his films make money. Like, we'll probably, oh. you know, we'll just, we'll give Mumford and Sons a state subsidy because they generate income, you know. It's that kind of, that was like yeah. the David Cameron mentality. And I don't think it's a, it's evolved much in the Tory party. It's gotten worse because it used to be the case that, like, when, when, when Blair started uh, rolling back various welfare support systems while campaigning on the sort of cultural appeal of Cool Britannia, yeah. right, the absolute fucking weasel. Yeah, like 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 those bands existed because there was a, a, a strong welfare state in place to make it possible to do yeah, so. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. So you could be a, a musician and, and not have to squeeze it in after working 50 hours a fucking week. Yeah, like Oasis are like such a kind of dull band, almost like a callback to the bands in the late 70s who just basically were able to develop as a band because they could like survive on the dole because of thanks to Britain actually having a welfare state. Yeah, Oasis you know? aren't posh, are they? They're not like quite the opposite. wealthy families. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but... For a time, it was this kind of very, very obvious class thing where things like the opera or the symphony would get funding, right? Because that's yeah. that's that's real art, you know? And all the grassroots stuff 
that doesn't matter. That's for the plebs. I was reading an interview of that cunt Lloyd Webber in The Guardian. Oh, he was actually, he was saying, <laughs> he was complaining, he's saying he, he resigned as a conservative peer. Like, he didn't have a good word to say about the Tory party. Like, if, yeah. a few years ago, he was flying into the UK to vote to cut benefits for the poorest people yeah. as a, in the House of Lords. Uh, 2017, he hung up his uh, peership to f- uh, focus on... Um, making his yeah. uh, awful musicals but but he he's fucking pissed off at the government now because they don't consider yep. uh the kind of stuff he does to be even socially useful yep. even a guy who's been such a cash cow for uh, the arts as he has mm-hmm. he wrote a eurovision song for the uk my god it was sung by <laughs> was it engelbert Hung- humperdinck who has a fantastic name but my god boy what yeah a- the guy who <laughs> beat the beatles to number one when they put out <laughs> strawberry fields forever <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. But yeah, it's getting worse. Even the posh arts aren't protected because ultimately what it comes down to is does it make money? You know, is it in favor of capital? And classical music is not. It's it's very expensive to, to maintain. You know, all those all those musicians in the orchestra, they need full-time wages. Uh ideally, if they're gonna practice yeah. the eight hours a day that they need to, although I guess six, what was it? um the great Bach violinist uh Oh my God, whose name escapes me said never practice more than three hours a day. Um, But (laughs) the grueling timescales in the classical world don't really allow for that. And even though it's like heavily gatekept, if you're like a a, a self-taught classical musician, can you imagine such a thing? A a self-taught classical musician in the way that you might be (laughs) a rock musician or a blues musician or even a jazz musician. That doesn't sound real, does it? Like a self-taught classical musician. No. No. Because the, 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 the spaces at the, at the conservatories are limited, the instruments are expensive, and the education needed, right, which, which starts at a very early age with private tuition, the, the violin method, the Suzuki method, which I think starts kids off at age six or something, you know, is world famous for being a very effective way of playing classical violin, but it's, it's, it's untenable, really. You know, it's its own kind of thing, sort of like the sort of social dynamics of the classical music. And a lot of it is very heavily gatekept, right? Like, I think you could probably have some decent classical musicians uh, from a, a an autodidactic background, right? From a self-taught kind of approach. You can make it a bit more rock and roll. You can absolutely have classical music be a, be a bit more rock and roll. Yeah. Even some composers try that. You know, the Shostakovich, uh, is it Shostakovich? The, the, the jazz suites. Those are great. You can play those with like, you know, like a double bass, a, a guitar and a violin. Like it's, you know, like a... A little folk setup. You get figures who kind of like straddle uh, rock and roll and classical music, like John Cale as well. Yeah. But I mean, he is—he's an example of someone. I don't think he comes from a particularly rarefied or posh background, but he's definitely uh, trained at the academy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And that was obviously a different generation. John Cale came up in the sixties. Yeah, I, man, it's there's there's so much to say, and I guess this shouldn't really be thing about the sorry state of the music industry or the music scene in the uk <laughs> no we can yeah but it's relevant yeah i mean to type back in with the mumford and sons thing i'm almost a little bit thankful for winston marshall having a tantrum having a big boy tantrum an adult son tantrum <laughs> and yeah yeah off yeah because it's put a bit of a bit of focus on this it used to be more of a niche complaint i think it's becoming a little bit more kind of obvious that this just isn't sustainable Right. Uh, and especially with the pandemic, yeah. that there's no scene anymore. Where do you go? Where do you meet musicians? You have to meet them online. And then what? Record your part separately? Does anyone jam? You, 
you know, how easy is yeah. it to actually find band members? I live in a in a large city for Scotland comparatively. I play fucking folk music. You'd think <laughs> in a yeah. in a large city in Scotland, <laughs> I'd be able to easily find people to work with. But it's not because if you're in a Kelly band and you do weddings, that's where the good money is. And you guard those places jealously. Yeah. You don't want more Kelly bands. That's more competition, right? I had a jam with my mate recently, just uh me on acoustic guitar and him on percussion and both of us singing and it is so fucking good man it's like the first time in mm -hmm. in ages you oh, know magical, played yeah. with someone yeah you know i've been going back to the gigs we've we brought the Clawhammer banjo into the set it used to be just mandolin and guitar and it's it, it it's so much fun and people love it you know just a bit of an old timey twang a little bit of cripple creek just a bit of bounce okay. yeah you you play uh, both banjo and mandolin, don't you? I play guitar, banjo, and mandolin, and I'm uh, slowly learning on the low whistle, the piano, a little bit. That's kind of <laughs> on the back oh, burner. Oh, cool, yeah. I, I play, I can chunk on piano, I think it's called. I can do, yeah. like, my mate says it's what Paul McCartney does. Just play, basically, I know one shape, yeah. which is, I think, a triad, and I can play basic chords with that. Yeah, and you and run through your one, four, tinkles. five, and that's all you need, really. You know, like... <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I recently bought myself a bouzouki, which is just so much fun. Nice, nice. Do you know anyone in your folky scene who can play pedal steel guitar? Uh, beautiful instrument. Yes, the banjo player from my bluegrass band. Uh, he does the scrug style with all the finger picks. So, Ooh. so it's that fully syncopated nice. three finger picking ticket, 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 ticket. You know, That's um, and stuff. you can apply that to pedal steel very easily. You can even tune it like a banjo. So you're basically just playing like scrug style banjo, but with something on your lap. A beautiful instrument. No, that's a lap steel. I don't steel. know anyone in the UK who plays. That's lap steel. <laughs> you asked about pedal yeah, steel. Yeah, lap steel, yeah. See, lap steel, I think maybe because it's like smaller and like maybe easier to import or whatever <laughs> and cheaper. Like there, there's slightly more people in the UK. You you will occasionally hear of people who play lap steel, but I can, I can think of like Pete Drake who played on, uh, I think, George Harrison's All Things Must Pass and, and a bunch of really cool records in, like, the early 70s in particular. And I think he even did go over to Nashville and play yeah. there. I think he, well, he's a British go, guy. You know, like, like... Probably dead now. Play <laughs> pedal steel. <laughs> There's no market for it. I don't think I've ever seen a pedal steel being used in any kind of album or live setting in the UK. The closest I'd get to is when Robert Randolph did some guest solos on Ozzy's uh, cover album, which was great fun. Oh. Wow, you you probably can get it in Ireland because they like country music in Ireland. They like well, they like Irish country, which is a slightly different beast. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's still some of it. Like you know, you know that documentary, uh, the Miami Show Band Massacre. Like I watched that expecting it to be about Miami, and then it's all set in Ireland. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I swear they had a pedal steel oh, cool. And admittedly, that was 1975, and yeah. they may, they you know, uh, maybe it sounded more like American country back then. But I reckon, yeah, there's maybe a couple of couple of guys in Ireland who Fair play enough. it. I think <laughs> Irish country is so funny to me because they just play like Irish folk songs, like pub songs, but it's all these like you know, 19 year old boy band looking singers with like bright blue eyes and these really soft voices <laughs> and the production is so slick but it's still better than like your standard pop music because even though it sounds completely popified they still need to have a full band of people playing guitar playing fiddle playing the pipes playing the whistles you know it has to have all those elements in it 
So there's more of a market for it. There's a better industry that way. Um, and in in the mainstream pop music, everything has been hurtling towards this very isolated, sort of atomized idea of the bedroom producer, you know, with with, mm. with, with, with all this heightened technology being used to, not that having more technology is bad, like it's great, give us more opportunities, you yeah. know, please. Um, but, but when it's used as most new technological things are these days, when it's used to sort of replace the actual human ownership element or the or, or the, 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 the where I might identify a sort of stronger essence of value, right? When it kind of supplants ways that are more satisfying and more productive of making music, I start to get a little bit wary, which is why um, I wasn't super taken in by that TikTok sea shanty thing, which to me is the same uh, thing. Yeah. That's the same thing as Mumford and Sons. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, thing. no, I, I get, I get yeah. it. It's just like a, a signifier of folk yes. music of a, of, of a kind, rather than actually, yeah. you know, uh, telling anyone anything about w what it really is all about. By the way, Pete Drake, pedal steel guitarist from the UK, is dead uh, since <laughs> oh, 1985. Um, <laughs> but wait, is he actually from? No, okay. Pete Drake was from Nashville. I've no idea who the British. <laughs> I've no idea who the British guy was who, uh, okay. who, who played. So as of now, the number of British pedal steel players remains at zero. Back or, to or zero. Like a, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, maybe there's some like rich guy who like moonlights uh, on steel occasionally. Like maybe like Clapton has one in his house, but he's played it like once. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Uh, but 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 yeah. Um, uh, now I'm really scratching my head. Yeah, sorry. I, I... David Gilmore. David Gilmore oh, plays steel guitar. There you go. Okay. Okay, okay. I knew, I knew one of, like, the big lead guitarists from one of the big 70s rock bands did. Yeah. So, when I referred to Pete Drake as a British pedal steel guitar player of some renown, I was actually thinking of BJ Cole, although Pete Drake is indeed a pedal steel guitar player of some renown, just not a British one. Now, B.J. Cole has played on albums including Elton John's Madman Across the Water, on which he plays the iconic pedal steel line on Tiny Dancer, The Goodies, World of the Goodies, multiple albums by Humble Pie, records by Procore Harum, Olivia Newton-John, other Elton John records, Cat Stevens, Roger Waters, he plays on Spiritualized Ladies and Gentlemen We Are Floating in Space, one of, in my view, the best British records of all time, some fucking Richard Ashcroft solo album, David Gilmore, Robert Plant, Sting, Pet Shop Boys albums, he's worked with John Cale, who we mentioned on the show, he's worked with Jimmy Nail, and he played on Felt's brilliant album Me and a Monkey on the Moon. So, Basically, if you've heard Grey Pedal Steel on a British guy's record made in Britain, it's probably been played by BJ Cole. Like, if you can play, <laughs> if you want to get like a similar sound, but, but you don't want to buy the huge thing, you can get yourself a Dobro with a square neck, right? Because the round neck Dobros yeah. are just played like normal guitars with a pick. Um, you get a square neck one, you get a little slide on your left hand, and if you can finger pick, right, if you can play that kind of scrug style, or even if you can just slightly play like, like, like two finger stuff, right, just thumb and index, you know, like a, th a thumb lead, and do the little harmonic bits with your index finger, you can probably easily wrap your head around that kind of sound, and it's fun to have, that, that little resonator yeah. sound is great, anyway. Absolutely. 
Um, I, I think I find like slide generally is like one of the hardest uh, like forms of guitar playing to do. And then when you, even though there's certain aspects of it, like just like playing in an open tuning and just one chord being just basically mm-hmm. a bar on a particular fret, like that's all pretty simple. But actually getting it to sound good and get real musical is a bit of mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, a, a, an acquired skill yeah. but then when you play uh, pedal steel uh, it adds in the whole other element of pedals mm-hmm. gotta be doing like a fucking hundred things at once so that's like even Jerry Garcia uh, who I think was a fantastic pedal steel player if you listen to stuff on the Dead's two uh, albums they put out in 1970 or on Teach Your Children by CSNY or uh Southbound Train by Crosby and Nash. Like, Jerry played some great pedal steel. You're going to kick me off the show, but the only Grateful Dead song I really know is Friend of the Devil, and that's because Kent Crows did a cover of it. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, well, that's got... You, I'm not you a dead to fan. Me. I'm not a deadhead. I like Jerry Garcia for his, like, bluegrass stuff, you know, like where he's playing mandolin with, with uh, David Griezmann. Listen, David Grisman. That's what I was going to say. Listen back to the uh, original <laughs> Friend of the Devil for David Grisman's mandolin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he played a nice part on that. And yeah, I agree with stuff with, with Jerry is cool but what I was leading to is even like a master guitarist like Jerry Garcia who I actually think was pretty good at pedal steel like never really played it after initially starting to uh, what what he would have thought of as fucking around with it but it sounds to me like great pedal steel parts in the early 70s uh, he did bring it back on the 87 Dead Tour with Bob Dylan uh, but that was because you know he was trying to serve uh, you got to serve somebody, you know, uh, and and that's and that somebody they did play that song on that tour, and that somebody was Bob Dylan. Uh, but yeah, he was just uh, he was trying to serve some of Dylan's country songs. But um, while we're talking about instruments, let's go back to Winston and his banjo and so forth. I, I thought a lot of people were saying, you know, there was a quote in his medium piece of why I'm leaving Mumford and Sons. So he said, "I'm used to abuse. After all, I'm a banjo player." And everyone was like, oh my god, he's literally saying oh. playing banjo is, is a protected category. And I'm like, no, no. he's just making yeah. a joke. You're literally just saying, huh, that joke is funny. Yeah. It's like, yep. Yeah, what's well the done. old joke? How do you tell a polite banjo player? And the answer is they play the mandolin instead. <laughs> but I, I was actually uh, going to get to the most recent thing. So there's two things on his Twitter timeline currently. So... Sadly, uh, when he left the band, he wiped all his prior tweets, so people have lost lost some great crypto advice. Banjo coin. Yeah, but the, <laughs> the first of the two things on here is the "Why I'm Leaving Mumford and Sons" by Winston Marshall article on Medium. The second of the things is thank you, Barry Weiss, for having me. It was a great oh pleasure. Oh my god! And he, <laughs> he's appeared on Barry Weiss's Honestly podcast. Uh-huh. That's uh, just like right-wing Zionist American former New York Times writing yeah. now stub substack contributing general piece of shit Barry Weiss yeah I could play devil's advocate slightly I mean I do have a little bit of a personal distaste for I I guess for like how some of the social dynamics on like Twitter work mm. it's very funny what happened to Winston like he just tweeted this is a good book anti for you know like which is a very, very commonly held opinion across large swaths of the population. There's so many bands that have like shithead members. 
that if you yeah. if you if you if you started yeah. policing everything or if you tried to like ethically consume all your music i don't know how comfortable you'd be how easy that would be it probably wouldn't be the smartest thing to do and i can i can maybe see where not where he's coming from but 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 like i it's the way these things work right like one case goes viral this guy shouldn't be a thought leader he's no. some guy who's since they're strumming his banjo with a pit going oh go down the fucking mill milking a cow oh, old timey <laughs> shit <laughs> wanker but yeah exactly no one should be looking to that guy for like political no. guy and now they might be <laughs> Have we honestly not done that word for word on a Gabecast yet? <laughs> yeah, I'm drawing on, on pre-existing material there. <laughs> the deep folk traditions of the Wurzels. Uh, you know, and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, but I know, I get what you're saying, Elijah. Yeah, then he's just like, oh, great book, everyone should read it. And everyone's like, fuck you, you fascist. Um, yeah, like just just, just roll your eyes and move on. He's a fucking dumb shit banjo player for a bad band. It was also really funny. So who's to say, really? It was very funny. That was the thing. <laughs> I was more laughing. You know. <laughs> I remember I saw a vi- I just got it up now actually. But Mumford and Sons they did an interview on Channel Four News in 2016 around the time of a referendum, and I remember watching it and like uh, it's Marcus Mumford and some dickhead in a hat. And I don't know if either of you know if it can identify whether that's uh, Winston or one of the other Mumfords. But he's just like sitting next. He looks a lot like Brendan O'Neill here, actually. He's just sitting next to um, Marcus Mumford. Just oh god, I find Marcus Mumford just so irritating to look at as well. But uh, but he's just there nodding away, basically. Marcus Mumford gets a slight bit of a pass because he has the Chris Thiele connection. He was on the, the soundtrack for Inside Lewin Davis. Um, and he did a good job. Um, and Chris Thiele was also on that soundtrack. I think they even sang together on one of the songs. I might be wrong about that. Um, Chris Thiele, of course, being probably the currently most talented bluegrass musician musician out there I, I would argue <laughs> but um I, I i don't think it's surprising that this band has been a breeding ground for someone like winston marshall <laughs> to emerge from as a cultural figure and hopefully he doesn't hopefully he's too dumb to do anything with it if i had wings like noah's dove i'd fly the river to the one i love that is his best work is his nice little folk covers on that he i don't even i think he might even put on an american accent for that which is just merciful because like all right so neil young has got this song called dance 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 which is like uh, uh never fall love had a rainbow on it used to think a cloud was a nightmare and then it's like dance dance feel it all around you dance 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 and mumford and sons covered that at neil young's annual bridge school band benefit and it was just like dance 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 it's like shut the fuck up so uh, i would have murdered this uh, this guy if i was there like literally oh my god but then neil actually is is performing it with them and he starts singing uh dance and a dance like it should be sung and they're all like oh shit what do we do we've got to sing harmony on this so they all just start singing dance like they should have done in the first place yeah there's something really weird about a full-on irritating english accent like some of them are fine but some of them you know the kind i mean right um... yeah it's, it's just like he's Singing just constantly kind of singing music. like 
It, it, I see Robert E. Lee on the horizon. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, I'm over-egging, like, the cockneyness of it all because they're Southern English, but they're posh. They're not they're not uh-huh. cockneys, but they do those, oh, kind of vowels, which piss me off. Jay left no, me standing, no standing on the mountain. Fuck it, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Walk into the theatre, shoot Lincoln in the head. (laughs) (laughs) I just imagine they do the like the band style Confederate reenactment society shit. Oh, they might. But I'm actually, I'm watching, so I've got this video up of of Marcus Mumford uh, and Dickhead in a hat. Uh, being interviewed by uh, Christian and Guru Murphy on Channel 4 News and they're talking about Brexit and uh, Marcus Mumford just comes out with some like centrist guff about yeah I think it's maybe time that this country start listening to different perspectives and start listening to each other it's it's sort of awoken a lot of friends and colleagues talking about politics in a way we haven't before we really felt that it's been that relevant to us uh, they're saying they didn't feel politics was relevant before. Well, and he's no, saying, you know, not, even yeah. though there's... Di- Marcus Mumford concludes, even though there's differing voices and opinions, even within the band... See uh-huh. uh, um, a little sign of things to come. Now, it's sort of um, awoken a lot of our friends and colleagues to talking about politics in a way that we haven't before. Um, we haven't really felt that it's been that relevant to us, but obviously this is a, a huge thing. And, um, you know, even though there's differing voices and opinions even within the band i think we're excited that there's it feels like there's a growing gap in the conversation for um for more developed conversations about common good social justice in a way that there hasn't been for a while and so like personally speaking i'm I'm excited for what's to come and the conversations that you know our generation can have seriously now about what we stand for and who we are can can you guess yeah can you guess maybe I, i i i'm just yeah, again, just guessing here, but I wonder who the member of the band who presumably supported Britain's exit from the European Union was. I, I mean, yeah, like he's never written a political song in his life, right? The 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 lyrics to Mumford and Sons things are just so trite and like you know, not about the Confederacy, pop okay. radio <laughs> shit, yeah. Um, that's about as good as you can expect from from someone who writes that kind of music to 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 say on politics. But you would hope that someone who has to make a living touring might have been slightly aware of some of the potential issues with Brexit for musicians. Looking at you, Bruce Dickinson. Oh yeah, he weirdo. came he came yeah. out. Um... Alex Skolnick from Testament just fucking battered him on on Twitter. It was great. Um, but yeah, like it's that's about as much as as, as you can expect from. Him. And when you're a when you're that big a band, you have to manage your image, right? So I do wonder if maybe they had to have a word with him about this, you know, sort of like outbreak. Yeah. Oh, I think they certainly had a word with him and he was like, okay, I'll take some time out and I'll learn and grow. <laughs> and then in in his time out where he, that he took to learn and grow, then probably like every like right-wing asshole was like DMing him like, Mate, I think it's ridiculous what happened to you. Here, read my book as well. Yeah. And he just got further radicalized to the point where he was just like, you know what? Fuck this. I want my freedom of speech. Yeah. And now he's doing like interviews with Barry Weiss and shit. Getting him love bombed. He'll end up running like a variety hour on GB News or something. The Winston Marshall. <laughs> sort of. It's so. Uh, it's so similar to like the. the the Eve Barlow thing, oh, you know, another idiot <laughs> from the music scene. 
<laughs> you, you fart low. Who, like, she's just, like, people started taking the piss out of her for her right-wing views, and then instantly she was, like, she fully leaned into the right-wing yeah. thing and was turning up on and Fox News and shit. That was, that was really funny. People were going back, like, finding some of her older tweets with just, like, weird things in them, and there was one, she was talking about this music store in Glasgow. I think it's a chain. I don't remember the name. Um, one of you might. Um... And she was saying no idea, sorry. it was the only place where Jewish teenagers like me could safely listen to music. And that raised some <laughs> questions. Was she not talking about, like, fop? Yeah, just a branch yeah, of fop? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, it's just like shit. a place with like, nice, affordable CDs. It's not like some fucking safe haven. <laughs> I mean, I thought fop was cool when I moved to Scotland at, like, 17, simply because it had, like, all the sort of canon albums and that for about a fiver each yeah, instead of yeah. 15 quid each. Exactly. It's got value for that, <laughs> but it's not some great countercultural haven. It's not... It, yeah, you know, pe- people aren't, like, forming bands over the friendships <laughs> they make in FOP and, <laughs> and, and, and this shit, you know? It's, it's just a record store, like, a record chain. I moved to Scotland about... 11 years ago, I didn't really know what FOP was. When I saw it, I thought, is this like a nightclub or something? And then someone told me, no, it was just a fucking record store. I go, okay. Did it have that thing like that some record stores have that's kind of cool where you can like um, go collect a little pile of CDs from your browsing and, and then you go listen to them and they'll give you headphones and they'll put it on the mm. speaker for you. And, and they go, no, it didn't have that. It, did, it didn't even have the no. shitty little stands where you would scan the barcode and, and it would play you like a badly compressed 30 second clip of the, <laughs> of the tune. Um, nothing very, very confusing, very bizarre. I mean, I, I think they generally add, like, good staff, if you like, compared yeah. with some of the, the bigger chains. But at the same time, <laughs> like, they weren't, like, the underdog, really. Because when, when they when they first went bust and actually got, like, taken over by HMV, it came out that basically they were, like, systematically yeah. trying to undercut, like, smaller, like... what you know, in individual um, independent record stores oh, off by like yeah. un- undercutting their so supplier. Cheap. And in, in some cases, literally, I say literally, probably shouldn't say literally for, for libel reasons, but stealing shipments from them, you know? <laughs> like there, there were actual, there were actual like uh, implications of, of theft and, and proper illegality going on. Um, and it, you know, everyone that worked for like an individual uh, record store in a city, in or, or nearby where they had a, a chain branch fucking hated fop oh dear that's really funny i mean if you want to talk about gatekeeping in music if there's one field where i do wholeheartedly think we should be severely gatekeeping it it's music journalism i don't think you should be able to write about music i don't think you should be able to be a music journalist unless you are an accomplished musician or have like studied music theory right and like songwriting theory because I don't, no, I, no, 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 I, no, no, I don't know. No, because what, ends, that, nah, what yeah. ends up happening is you get these people who just like things because they're just normal fucking people, and people's tastes are weird, right? De gustibus non disputando mest, and 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 they they decide that they're now like the scions of cultural value and analysis, and that they've actually accomplished something by just having. A kind of taste. This is where I, I, <laughs> I would gatekeep that. I would say you want to be a music journalist, right? Uh, what are the four chords of pop to start with, at least? You know, like like at a very simple level. <laughs> That's just a, a disproportionate amount of um, 
music journalists are incredibly obnoxious people though that's that's not it's not uh the the, the problems with music journalism aren't because not that many of them are, are accomplished musicians well, i think know? that would cut yeah. down on it i think that would cut down on it that would stop someone who's just a boring fucking lazy shithead who can't do anything to to feel like they're actually cool and good because they have opinions about something that everyone has opinions on, which is music. I think like a prerequisite being knowledge of musical theory, I think that would uh, end up rarefying further the the uh, <laughs> class stock of of those uh, in, <laughs> involved in the music scene. We talked earlier how you know you often uh, it's not many working class kids who who get to have a massive amount of training mm-hmm. at the academy yeah. these days. You know, well that's another problem like that's a different issue i got mad at someone on twitter today because he said if working class musicians uh really cared about their craft they would they would teach themselves how to read music right how to read theory it was a clip of dave Grohl saying he, he didn't read music when he was a kid and, and still doesn't now and someone was like all surprised mm. like hi i was like well it's, it's, it's normal drummers guitar players whatever it works better with frets you have this matrix system with the frets and the strings the way that chord construction works makes perfect sense with tablature you don't really need to read music, to develop a working theory of songwriting, and this happens organically in working class communities where that education isn't provided. But the flip side of that is that music theory, I think, is actually piss fucking easy. You just have to teach it the right way, but it's gatekept by people who have a stick up their arse about, oh, well, this is a fancy thing, you know. You have to deconstruct, oh, I, I, I get deconstruct that. a sonata. You could easily, I mean, I'm a private music teacher, I don't have a million qualifications. I have no musical qualifications. I've just done it. I've, I've, I've taught myself and I'm teaching others. And I teach 11 year olds like grade five music theory and they get it because you don't have to make it this like whole big academized administrative bureaucratic thing. You know, it, it could easily be, be, be widespread knowledge. That's a different issue. Maybe that should be that might be a prerequisite to start gatekeeping musical journalism. Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, yeah, I, I do think it's good when a, a a music critic has an actual kind of like almost a formal knowledge of music whether not necessarily that they read music but maybe that they just they just kind of they maybe play instruments themselves mm-hmm. may know how they sort of know how it works and i certainly don't think that it's great that so much music now music journalism now is simply focused on writing about the cultural context mm-hmm. or even worse, just regurgitating essentially what oh, the record yeah. company have put out. Like, I mean, there's nothing in Pitchfork's review of that, that Olivia Rodrigo album that could not have been briefed by the press department of her label. Mm-hmm. And not, I'm saying they, sh- I'm not saying they should slag it off, but that uh, you know, some real craven client journalism going on uh, in in the music press. It's certainly no Pink Floyd review from Pitchfork. <laughs> <laughs> Have you but read that I, I one? Do you know, know that the, one I'm talking jet, about? The jet one with a monkey pissing in the m- mouth. That I, I remember that one. What's the Pink Floyd? Oh one? my god! Right, give me one second here. Because uh, well, while you while you find this, I was just going to say, but one thing I'm I but I'm skeptical of the idea that you need to really know about music technically to write about music because I don't even think you write well about music even because i don't think you even need to know much about music technically to make great music in fact you you specifically yourself elijah mm-hmm. you talk about how you love oasis for the the song construction yeah. the kind of mastery of pop craftsmanship craftsmanship but noel gallagher is a complete autodidact 
not just in the sense that he, he you know he didn't teach himself to read music like uh you're and i'm sure you're right for it that is possible i've just can't haven't done it because i'm an idiot but, <laughs> but like you know but he taught himself you know basically to play guitar and to write songs and just got, kind of like went by instinct and so i think you know if somebody does kind of like have a feeling for music and if they can write that's another thing as well which is that I, you know, I like reading books about music and stuff that talk about like the history and talk about, mm-hmm. and try and get into it on like a granular level yeah. as well. You know, if if somebody can write, you know, I think I think like music criticism is uh, is is perfectly legitimate. But we've we've almost gone on a sidetrack yeah. here. Um, if you want to talk about, uh, if you want to, <laughs> what was the Pink Floyd? It's thing? not Pink Floyd. It's a it's a Radiohead review. It's an infamous Radiohead review. In Pitchfork, oh, by Brett yeah. DiCrescenzo. Swanking the kid A1. Yes, yeah. the kid A1. I had, yes. I had never seen yeah. a shooting star before. 25 years of rotations <laughs> passes through comets' paths and travel. And to my memory, I had never witnessed burning debris scratch across the night sky. Radiohead were hunched over their instruments is how it starts. <laughs> <laughs> it's bringing it right back it's, down to it's Earth. It's amazing. Yeah. No. I mean... <laughs> Fantastic. The one thing I would say, if you're, if you're listening to this and you are... If you've ever thought about music theory and thought it seemed like scary and big, you need to know two things. You need to know your alphabet up to G and how to count to seven. And the rest is just organizing. <laughs> uh, the hardest part of, like that, of, yeah. of, of, of reading music and music theory is getting started. It's just knowing what the symbols mean, knowing how it's arranged, how it's organized. If you get like one session with a theory teacher, someone like down to earth, not, not like an academic kind of thing, um, one session to, to explain how it works, you can do the rest of it by yourself because everything is simple ways to remember things. There's all these tricks. And again, just count to seven, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like, that's it. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, but getting started is is probably the hardest part. Anyway, um, back to you if, if you want to reel us back into <laughs> yeah. where we were because I can, I can talk about this shit for ages until the cows come home. And you have the milk that is taken from cows in the south and taken from cows in the north. Let's talk more Mumfords. Um, I, I I resent that Mark, Marcus Mumford seems to be have been accepted into, uh, to reuse a word from earlier, a kind of rarefied circle of, like, Americana singer-songwriters. Mm-hmm. Like, so when the Bob Dylan Corporation <laughs> uncovered, like, <laughs> 20 unreleased Dylan lyrics from the Basement Tapes in 1967, I think some of the people who they reached out to to interpret the songs make total sense. Like, it makes mm-hmm. sense to get T-Bone Burnett to produce it, because he's a kind of folk music historian. He is also the producer of those Coen Brothers folk music-related projects, which we'll get to, because they have some Mumford's crossover. Is this related um, to the new Basement Tapes? This is exactly what I'm That's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, It makes sense to me, yeah, get Elvis Costello, get Jim James, you know, Rhiannon Giddens. She's amazing. Like, Giddens, like, yeah. Her contributions were really good, even though she says in the documentary on it, she's not even a yeah, Dylan fan, but probably because of that, she was able to, like, bring a different approach to it, more, more grounded in probably some of the stuff that influenced Dylan yeah. rather than in his music, like some real root, roots music. Absolutely, yes. But then, like, Marcus Mumford getting the invite, it just like, feels <laughs> to me like, fuck off. And then one of his songs, I forget what it's called, 
Just an awful song. One of the earlier songs on the album. I'm just looking at which ones he's credited on. But it literally sounds like it's produced by Diplo. It's just inappropriate. It's like, don't, don't like write a chart song on the, the basement tapes. Like, the basement tapes is like substandard audio quality, uh, inscrutable that lyrics. Big dumb blonde with a wheel gorged. Turtle, that friend of hers, with his checks all forged and his cheeks in a chunk, with his cheese in the cash. They're all gonna be there at that million dollar bash. You know, the sound of just guys like hammering away in a hot, humid house in Woodstock. A tape recorder in a bar. The Dark Throne way, right? The fucking black metal way, basically. Exactly. At most, at most, you get like one omnidirectional mic and you all stand around it. And then you have to step forward for your solo, right? The way God intended. <laughs> the other funny thing about that is, like, it's never, no one ever, like, mentions it in the documentary. But, like, Johnny Depp just turns up to the sessions and plays guitar on one track. Just, like, completely, just like the ultimate star fucker. Like, Johnny Depp just... I think that's kind of fun. He loves insinuating himself into, like, every rock and roll thing that's happening. Like, he plays on Oasis's Be Here Now. <laughs> like, and he's got his band with Alice Cooper and Joe Perry now. Would you not do that if you were like famous for like something oh, course, else and yeah. you wanted to be a rock star? I mean, Johnny Depp has a bit more, I think, street cred there. He was uh, like close personal friends with Shane McGowan. He plays guitar on That Woman's Got Me yeah. Drinking um, off the Pope's album after McGowan left the Pope. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Un underrated albums. Yeah. I fucking love ones. that tune. That Woman's Got Me Drinking, look at the state I'm in. It's, it's dirty. It's great. And he's in the music video. Do you remember the track with the anti-Semitic lyrics on the Pope's, uh, the Shane McGowan? No, I don't. What the fuck? What? Back in the county of hell, where he's like, I'll like fucking kill all the queer journalists and the Hasidic Jews or something. Holy shit, like back it. in the... It's like, it's a re... <laughs> I mean, is it back in the county hell? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I'm I'm just looking up those lyrics there. I I would suspect if it's a continuation of the boys from the county hell, then he's playing a personality, right? It's a character. Cause, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Boys from the county hell has got me. Me daddy was a blue shirt. Me mother a madame. My brother earned his medals. And the original lyric was killing gooks in Vietnam. And then they changed it. Yeah, and yeah. then they changed it to at my lay in me in Vietnam, which is worse almost. Uh, for what it insinuates about the person. Um, but the first yeah. folk song I ever heard was The Sickbed of Cuh Holland, the the, the the first track off of Rum Sodomy and the Lash. And he sings about uh, knocking out a black shirt who was cursing Dex Jewish people. fucking yeah. black shirt. Yeah, who, yeah, exactly. Yeah, You're slightly censored Shane there. But yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> Probably for the best. When you pissed yourself in Frankfurt and got sipped down in Cologne And you heard the rattling stack trains as you lay there all along Frank Ryan bought your whiskey in a brattle in Madrid And you take some fucking black shirt who was cursing all the yeds And a sick bit of Coo Cullen will nail and say a prayer But a ghost are rattling at the door and the devil's in the chair But yeah, like, I mean, uh, in this song on, on Genius, the lyrics are actually, um the censored lyrics because like i think something like on the album it's unchanged but like in the lyric booklet so like the widely circulated lyrics they they changed it to like so notice that this doesn't rhyme mm -hmm. um where is it uh my death squads would be kids from flats or high from sniffing glue 
I'd use them to kill rich Brits and the journalistic whores. <laughs> he does not no. sing and the journalistic <laughs> whores of the album. That line is uh, the Hasidic Jews and uh-huh. there's some homophobic thing elsewhere. Yeah. me in basically saying it's just funny in the new basement tapes documentary how just like randomly johnny depp's just there in one scene yeah. and he doesn't even like get interviewed it's just like there's a caption like johnny depp actor and musician uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah i don't know i felt like mumford was a real weak link on that project to be honest yeah there was one thing i did want to bring up today which is going back to the i think the very first point i made about how Mumford is the safe, you know, anodyne, sterile kind of version of country and bluegrass that, 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 yeah. that people can sort of safely enjoy without having to come to terms with it or, or confront any of the reasons why they might not like it. Even if it's something as simple as like accents, you know, like those thick southern accents you get on some of the singers. Um, like I've got friends who've, since I've gotten like heavy into bluegrass, they've been listening to it because I've been sending them tunes and they're going, do you know what? I, ha- I have to kind of overcome like this sort of bias about it, you know, and then it's good. Um, but yeah. the, 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 the complete like lack of any political output from Mumford, that's fine. They're a, ma- they're a mainstream band. They're a pop band. You know, you don't have to expect that from them. Um, but which is kind of why this Winston Marshall thing, I think, is, is, is hitting me in a, in a very weird way, like. He's an absolute cunt. Making that be the the political connection between like a popular band in a in a bluegrass sense, right? Those associations being made, I'm 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 very upset about it because what's happening at the moment with like modern bluegrass artists in America is the exact opposite. And I just wanted to the, the, the Tyler Childer song off his latest album, yeah. Long Violent History, right? This is that's what we should be, I think. I'm I'm all about instead of just reacting to bad shit to sort of try to make a conscious effort to actually replace it with positive stuff. So Tyler Childers, Long Violent History. The album is all instrumentals until the last track. And he, and, yeah, yeah, so you can't ignore no. it. It's all it really stand makes it stand out. It's a, yeah, it's a wonderful artistic statement. He's he's a, he's a great fiddler. Uh, and then the song is is <laughs> what I think. Hey, your man out the gutter, boy. <laughs> what I think is actually in the last song is this is this actually great political approach to things where he frames it as a sort of inner dialogue where he presents himself as like a confused like sort of white guy from Hickman from Kentucky from somewhere in Kentucky I think he's from Harlem County famous place historically for trade union fights that famous song which side are you on of course and the TV show yeah. Justified which is, you know, also lots of fun. Um, yeah, um, one of my favorite shows. Oh yeah, great, f- f- fucking yeah. great. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, when 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 Mag sings uh, "High Up on a Mountain," the old event song. Yeah. Um, but. So, so, so he phrased it in terms of this inner dialogue, this kind of conversation where he's this sort of like starts off with this reaction that a lot of white Americans probably had, which like BLM, like why are they, you know, is, isn't this over the top kind of thing? And then he he frames it in terms of his people, where he's from, 
were killed by the state. They were killed by companies, by corporations, by state-subsidized massacre of the earth, these huge mining corporations, and they fought back. And he says, if we didn't accept it then, why should any other Americans accept it now? And I think that's a very good way of, like, approaching the topic with someone without getting, like, you know, fully into the sort of culture war type of rhetoric that most mainstream publications will use and that most liberal commentators will use, which is very sneering, you know, and very dismissive. Um, and he and he connects it to the struggles that, that they had for righteous causes, right? For for, 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 for trade unionism. The apocryphal origin of, of the term redneck uh, is the red bandanas that, that the people in these militant groups wore. I don't know how true it is, but, you know, it's, it's apocryphal, it's a story. If it's true, the fact that that thing gets turned around as a term of mockery is, I think, extra sick. Um, but that that great line he's got, he says, How many boys must we haul off this mountain? And the idea is that old, sort of, how many young men from these areas did the corporations have to murder and ruin before the parents and the families and the communities got angry enough to fight back? To me, that's not just a great song, but it's also an, an, an excellent way to approach the topic. And the reason why you won't hear mainstream liberal institutions do it is because it, it would mean accepting and coming to terms with the righteous history of these countries, uh, uh, yeah. counties, areas that they are determined to continue leaving in this oblivion of, of, of derisive racism and ignorance and hillbilly classes shit, oh man you know? that reminds me of like there was an article on like vulture or some sort of clickbaity site about eric clapton and his anti-vax shit the other yeah. day i can't remember <laughs> i can't remember the main the main thrust of it it was just like clapton being a dickhead blah 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 but then the final I think, bit i think i saw it or, or whatever quotes they were basing it on anyway um the, yeah the final line of it was just uh huh maybe maybe this is why he, Clapton has so many dates in the American South books. Oh my god! Oh god. Uh, just like, well, oh yeah, those fucking that's why, yeah, ignorant troglodytes. Yeah, they're so stupid. It's like not that like almost all of the music that Clapton plays, bar like reggae, originates in the American South. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, nothing to do with that. It's not or like Layla's a sick riff, and people want to pay money to hear it live. You know, it's because yeah, they're all anti-vax shitheads, and they love other anti-vax shitheads jesus yeah they're all just there at solidarity yeah. with his bold oh anti-vax stance uh no that that i thought i thought that was so dumb but yeah you're absolutely right that like there are obviously and i think it's maybe easy for for optimists who want you to believe that massively corporate backed commercial pop music equals like good and synonymous with oppressed minority groups mm -hmm. i think it's an easy shorthand for them to be like folk slash roots music equals reactionary because uh you know they uh prefer like acoustic string instruments to <laughs> synthesizers I, yeah. I you know i don't even i think there's such a bullshit rationale for that kind of thing but you know people like guys like both the liberal and conservative wings of mumford and sons aren't really helping no. with that impression. They reinforce that idea of basically folk music as that and willingly do so. 
but you know they do they they do get approval from a lot of people, not just T Bone Burnett, yeah. the uh, producer of Inside Lou and Davis and mm-hmm. uh, Lost on the River, the new Basement tapes. In 2012, Forbes magazine described Mumford and Sons saying, "In sum, they represent the entrepreneurial, creative, and intellectual best of their generation. Individually, they are engaging, surprising, and incredibly hardworking." Yeah, um, along with Adele and Rihanna. Is it? Yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, and uh, and various others. Um. Like, yeah. Thirty under thirty. There's uh, maybe Marcus Mumford is really really talented and a joy to work with, and people want to collaborate with him because he's good at getting stuff out of other people. Like some people are just like that, you know. Maybe I don't know. Mm. I'm skeptical, but it's entirely possible. But, but mm. like I've, I don't know. One of my favorite things from Inside Llewyn Davis is the fact that Justin Timberlake shows up, and just like perfectly plays that kind of character right that sort of session musician from the 50s or 60s yeah he's very good in that film yeah Uh, yeah. that's great i would love it if justin decided you know what i'm gonna do a roots album that would rock (laughs) i'm 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 sure he's more than capable of it he fit very naturally there i don't know man like i don't want to shit too much on these people mumford and sons annoy me as as a as a concept more than anything else i didn't have to think about them as individuals (laughs) until winston marshall (laughs) decided to fucking throw a tantrum and I resent him for that. They were just a hive mind before that. Yeah. <laughs> well, they sound like a fucking hive mind, don't they? Yeah, they do. We mentioned the new basement tapes, another way in which they've intersected with the general Bob Dylan mythology is that Mumford and Sons, on I believe their third album, went electric. It did. It was really boring. Yeah, but yeah. well, that's the thing. Like, this is a, you know, when Dylan went electric, it, like, changed the course of music history Judas. forever. And in fact, re- Judas! Re- really pissed off a bunch of uh, sour-faced left-wing folkies. <laughs> I don't believe you. Who were quite musically conservative in some ways, but maybe, you know, had some legitimate concerns about the encroaching yep. commerciality of 60s rock. You're a liar. Can, I can sympathize with that. With that completely. There's something. I think there is something powerful, something radical about the very existence of acoustic instruments, right? Um, there's a liberty to it, there's a freeing sense of it, there's a, um, um, an easier way to just get together and create something that has full completion, right? It, it is existentially attained in that moment. It doesn't need to go through a multifaceted process can be diluted or repackaged, right, Often for commercial interest. Um, I don't want to, like, I'm going to end up being the guy, the kind of guy who would shout Judas at Bob Dylan for fucking plugging in. <laughs> you evil motherfucker. I can sympathize with That's what with Bob it. Dylan said about the people who, yeah. he said, the people who called him Ju- Judas evil motherfuckers who can rot in hell. <laughs> well, now you have samplers on your phones, so, I mean, who... <laughs> so who was right? Who, who was right in the long run? <laughs> you got you got to bear in mind that Bob believes very strongly in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, so, <laughs> so calling him Judas, probably as he's got older, that 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 remark has grated on him even more. He's like, yeah. hey, I really hate Judas, that bastard. Um, but. Yeah, Mumford and Sons went electric, and it was not a uh, radical, uh, seismic shift in the culture. They just made a bunch of songs that basically sounded like sort of uh, post-Sex on Fire, Kings of Leon album yeah. tracks. Yeah, that's exactly what it was, and and not even the good ones. You know, like Whoa. not even deep cuts. 
They're like, okay, what combination can we put the woes in on this one? You know, which 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 YouTube B side do we plagiarize for the riff on this? Oh my one, god, my know? god, Marcus, Marcus, what if this time we started with the minor chord instead of the one? What <laughs> yeah, if we did yeah, A minor F C G instead of C G A minor F? Well, well, actually, since you like getting into, like, the granular details of music, <laughs> have you noticed the fucking thing about the drums on Mumford & Sons? It's always just like, it's almost like a dance beat. It's like, dum, 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 dum. It's, is it just like some guy hitting a kick drum or something? I'm just like, I find it really <laughs> annoying and, like, unfolk. I haven't listened to it in a long time. My guess is that it's meant to be pop music. It's, it's meant to be playable yeah. in nightclubs and not be too grating it needs to have like a a consistent bpm that a dj can be it. write down and you know use to sort of mix in with something which kind of annoys me <laughs> deeply because yeah, for me i mean more more of a country beat is just like kind of yeah. thing you know just like maybe lightly hitting a snare not a kick yeah. drum sometimes you have a crooked like... tune you know, sometimes the tune is crooked. Sometimes it's 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 uh, four measures of four four, and then one measure of three four. I guess they're folk rather than country, yeah. but still. Yeah, no, it's 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 absolutely that. It just it it's a it's a conscious decision to like not embrace the full potential of what you could be doing because of marketability. Which sure, same old story, but it it's still sad. It's really bad when like you know I'm quite into the uh, slightly questionable late era albums by uh, legendary artists and I can think of like two recent ones that have had tracks on it where I'm like well that's the Mumford's one like there's uh, on, on Elton John's last studio album of original material Wonderful Crazy Night uh, quite a decent album despite the title actually but there's this one song on it that's like I can even it pissed me off so much like how formulaic it was that it's completely embedded in my head even though I've listened to it about twice and skip it when, when I listen to that album but it's like you're like a tambourine I wanna play all day <laughs> just imagine the drama dung 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 yeah. dung Dude, you like a tambourine, I like to play the day. Correction. You're an open chord, I wanna play all day. This song is actually open chord, not tambourine. The second of two musical metaphors on the wonderful Crazy Night album. Tambourine is actually a significantly better song. And then also, uh, on The Who's uh, last album, their first in like 13 years. Uh, what's it called? I think it was just called Who. Uh, the Who... I just searched the Who's Who and it did not <laughs> the album. Okay, the Who, the Who Who produces uh, the album. That's the worst thing to ever happen. Googling with things relating to the Who. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out, Pete Townsend. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a death trap. But actually, no. The problem with this fucking track was that it wasn't written by Pete Townsend. It was written by his brother Simon, and it was just this bizarre, like Mumford and Sons stompy, like dun dun dun. It could break the news. I want to break the news. You're like a tambourine. Look, yeah. look. <laughs> you know, there's someone else to blame for that, though. I, I, I think this, this phenomenon you're describing. You know, the song, the, the, the Hey O tune by the Lumineers. No, yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. It was everywhere. It was just quite. It was quite a while ago now, but it was it was everywhere, and like loads of American TV shows even now just like use it for big attempted moments of emotion. God, I've probably it heard it. Effect, it's it's just like, a, hey, oh, it's that fucking song again. Oh, hey, oh, and there's just like this big pulsing. I think it's a kick. Yeah, boom, 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 like 
one single beat, and it has that kind of like coffee house kind of feel, you know, like a little more authentic, yeah. but very clearly deliberately so in a way that was then emulated by like a bunch of other people. When, if I find the drummer who played on one of those. I'm thinking of stuff like Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros and stuff like that, you know, like, yeah, you can tell when things are being repackaged for a specific mainstream commercial use, right? Yeah. And that jars. Exactly. It jars, you can tell. Yeah. You might not notice it, but your brain did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just felt I want to get one of the drummers who recorded one of those tracks and just get go <laughs> boom, 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 but with my fucking fist. <laughs> <laughs> not as not but not 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 there. This not is the real place. threat to democracy and Tifa music critics <laughs> who want to use direct action to improve music. <laughs> Man, throw milkshakes at <laughs> bands. Disclaimer. The Real Politic Podcast do not endorse physical acts of violence against the drumming community. We would instead stand in front of them and yell, Judas. Did Our next guest, uh, Winston Watts... Winston... Marshall sets out the case against uh, Antifa. Antifa. You should send him to say, do you want to come on and rebut and respond? <laughs> God. It's me, I'm the threat to democracy. Yeah, Fuck. yeah exactly. Marshall so let's just right. conclude. Starmer out. Starmer out. Starmer out. That's, that's what I want people to go home from this with. Starmer should learn Starmer the banjo and he can out. join Mumford and Sons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a vacancy he, now. <laughs> he's got the right level of authenticity for it. Yeah, but first I hope he goes and uh, learns and grows, mm -hmm. takes the time out of everything. Anyway, let's finally wrap this up. That was good. Um, I'll I'll just uh, say thanks for having me. I've had a great time. I love talking about this stuff. I don't often get to talk about music in a political context, so it's um, thanks for giving me with the platform, and I hope I uh, held at my end of the of the um, of the burden of that of having a platform. Mm. Absolutely. I do music full time. I'm not super active online at the moment because um, work is coming back, which is nice. But if you are a content creator of any sort and you're a little bit confused about how the copyright stuff works with like having theme songs, you know, or like using stuff or, or whatever, uh, and you'd like something maybe original, you can give me a shout and I will record a public domain folk song or a bluegrass song for you with uh, my Ooh. multiple instruments and uh, and and you can use that. Oh fantastic. Well no, it would be good be good to jam at some point, I think, some somehow, even if it's not actually jamming. Yeah. Virtual collaboration or what have you. Yeah, we can send some tracks back and forth would be would be great fun. Uh, but I'm I mm. guess I'm just trying to, you know, monetize the hobby a little bit. Well it's not a hobby, it's my career, but I guess digital is a space where that could work. If you'd like lessons or if you'd like a recording, give me a shout. Because uh, I am always looking <laughs> for work. Um, that's my yeah. only plug. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter where I say mean things to dumb people. Cool. Well, <laughs> Starmer out. Starmer, Starmer out. out. <laughs>
It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing. 